please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter one. This morning we'll be looking at the second half of chapter one, verses 15 through 23. Our Lord Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, do you pray? Or have you lost heart? Do you struggle with prayer? Naturally, we all do. We can do nothing without God. We can't even pray without God's help. But God has not left us on our, on our own. He has taught us to pray. He has given us the spirit of prayer. In his word, he has given us examples of how we ought to pray. There's the Lord's Prayer. There is a whole book of Psalms that teach us how to come to God and every emotion that could be had, come to him properly. But it is also of great benefit for us to see the Apostle Paul's prayers. This morning we have a great prayer of the Apostle, probably quite a bit different than the way we usually pray. But this is given to us uh, to teach us how to pray, and to long for the things that Paul prays for because it is the thing that God desires for us. Now, so far in Ephesians, Paul has greeted the brothers and sisters in Ephesus, and then there was this long praise for the church, praise for what God has done for the church in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now our passage turns from praise to prayer. And so this passage teaches us not only how to pray, but what we truly need, and also, most of all, what we truly have. This is God's word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and knowledge that we might know you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
I don't know, you probably know someone who's really hard to buy presents for. Um, there are people who just don't seem to want everything. And then there are some people who seem to already have everything. And you're not sure what to give them. What do you buy for the person who has everything? Well, Paul began this letter by telling the Ephesians that God has blessed them with every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Nothing missing. So how do you pray for the person who has already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? It might sound like a difficult question, but it poses no difficulty for Paul. The very fact that we have been blessed leads him to prayer. It flows. He says, for this reason. And then he begins this another long sentence Verse 15 through 23 is all one sentence again. This long prayer that just pours out of him. Thankfulness, but also request. See, the fact is, these blessings drive him to prayer. Blessings have been laid up for us in Christ. We we get them by prayer. That's one way we receive them. But also, the blessings themselves were such that we might approach God. From the very beginning, we were called that we might stand, we might be holy and blameless before him. So Paul, in his prayer, is praying that we might, we might come to God. We might approach God. If I were to tell you that you have a free vacation to the Bahamas, You've been blessed with this vacation. What would you do? You would go to the Bahamas. If, if I tell you that Christ Jesus came to break down the walls that separated you from, from God, he has removed, paid the penalty for your sins so that you can come before him, what would you do? You'd come before him. The very fact that Paul is praying is because he is also a recipient of all these blessings. And when we hear that we have been called, we have this relationship with God, adopted as his children, it should drive us to prayer too. The whole whole point of all those blessings was not simply to bless us with things, but so that we could be together with God. All those blessings for us are summed up in Christ. They're meant to lead us to him. And it also leads here, Paul here to thankfulness. Paul says in verse 16 that he does not cease to give thanks for the saints in Ephesus while making mention of them in his prayers. He's constantly praying, he says. Even as Paul sits in prison, that's where he is as he writes these words. He's in chains. His heart overflows with thankfulness for them. And what does he thank God for specifically? Two things, their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. Now, he's called them elect. How does Paul know this? Has he gone up into heaven and read the the Lamb's book of life and saw their names there? No, he doesn't need to because he sees the evidence of every true Christian in their lives already. Faith in the Lord Jesus, love to the saints, Those two things sum up the whole book of Ephesians, really. The first half is about that faith that we have. The second half is 
filled with instruction about love to the saints. It really sums up the whole Christian life in a way. Love is that great evidence of faith. John wrote, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So these things are wonderful things to think of for Paul. There was a time when Ephesus, for thousands of years, was lost in darkness. There was the temple of Artemis. There were temples to other gods there too. It was a place of occult and magic and astrology. It was lost in darkness. And God called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Paul, though he is in chains, cannot contain. He cannot be, he's overwhelmed with the thought that God made a great change. For so many years, it was the Jews who had the gospel. The Gentiles were lost. And now there is a church of people in Ephesus that have faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards one another. Remember, not long before, they were separate from Christ without God and without hope in the world. Remember, brothers and sisters, so were you. So were people that you know who did not know God, and now they do. And does not that fill you with thankfulness? You know, sometimes we look too much at our own troubles, and we're told to count our blessings. Well, Paul has gone a step further. He's learned to find joy, not by counting his own blessings, but by counting our blessings, the blessings of others around him. He's, so, he's got such solidarity with his fellow brothers and sisters that it fills him with joy when he's in prison. The Lord Jesus feels that same solidarity too. You know, when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus considered the sufferings of the church to be his sufferings. That's how connected he is with us. And we also ought to pray for those who are in prison because we are those brothers and sisters who are in prison because we are also in the body. We rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Paul has learned to rejoice and to give thanks. And Paul is teaching us here to be thankful for brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters we have here around us at Eastbridge, The fact that this room is filled with people who love the Lord Jesus should fill us with with thankfulness. But how often do we thank God for such things, for our brothers and sisters, how God is working in their lives? Does it bring us joy? I'm reminded of the story in Luke 17 when Jesus came across 10 lepers who cried out for mercy. And when Jesus saw them, he told them to go show themselves to the priests And as they were going, they realized that a change had come upon them. And they had gone from the walking dead to being clean. And they went on rejoicing. One came back, a Samaritan, came back to the Lord Jesus. 
and fell on his face before him and gave thanks. And Jesus said, were there not 10 who were cleansed? But the other nine, where are they? I'm afraid that too often I'm one of the nine. Have we not been blessed even more than those lepers have been blessed? Has not a greater change come upon us? So another thing I might mention is Paul is not giving thanks for God, how God has blessed Paul. He could whine that he's in prison, but instead he has learned not just contentment in all things, but thankfulness in all things. And if, brothers and sisters, if you make a practice of this, thanking God for how he's working in the the lives of the brothers and sisters around you, it's difficult to remain upset or envious with others. This itself, this thankfulness, leads to greater love and unity in the church. Learn not just to count your blessings as Paul has enumerated them here in the, the first part of our chapter, but to count the blessings of your brothers and sisters around you and to thank God for it. But that's just the beginning of Paul's prayer. This prayer is more than thanksgiving. It is request. And we've already been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. So what is the great need that Paul prays for? You'll see it in verse 17. It is in brief to know God. He says, I, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he prays that we would know, and then he mentions three other things. But it begins, verse 17, with the knowledge of him. In brief, this is a prayer for knowledge, that you would know God. Paul prays that we would grow in our knowledge of God and that the Spirit would guide us into truth by helping us to understand what God has revealed to us in Scripture. Now, this is not merely a knowledge of facts about God, but a growing, deeper relationship with God based on what God has revealed. Specifically, Paul prays for these three things that we would grow in our knowledge of God's calling, God's inheritance, and God's power. I'll repeat it, but it's straight out of the text, really. God's calling, God's inheritance, and God's power, that we would understand these things more. So Paul is not praying here for additional blessings, but rather that we would grow in the knowledge of what we have already. When we have Jesus... For we are, we are often like a man who lives in poverty on a little piece of ground, not knowing that right underneath his feet there is a gigantic gold mine or diamond mine or, or, or oil well with more riches there than he could ever spend. And it's there for his possession. It belongs to him. It's been granted to him, but he doesn't know it. And so he sadly lives in poverty and squalor on his land. We are far too often like that man. Everything that you need for life and for godliness has already been given to you, laid up for you there in Jesus Christ. But do we even realize the vast treasure that is ours when we have him? 
we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing there in Christ. God's love has been poured out for us, a love that surpasses understanding, poured out for us and laid up for us in him. Paul's prayer is that we know what that means. I think it was John Calvin who said that God's promises are like treasure buried in the earth. And we, we dig them out by prayer. Prayer is that shovel. You know it's there. You, as you dig, you get further down. You don't just give up the first shovel of dirt that you turn over. If you know, you have a treasure map and the treasure's right there. You keep digging until you get it. And Paul's prayer is that they would grow in the knowledge of what they have when they have Christ. His first request is that we would know the hope of God's call. This is not speaking about your calling in life, your, your job, what God has called you to as work. This is God's call for us, that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. Scripture tells us all about this call. God has called us to be holy. Galatians tells us. He's called us to freedom. Corinthians tells us he's called us to peace. In Ephesians, he has called us to one hope. In 1 Peter, he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he called us to eternal glory in Christ. In Romans, he called us to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, God has called us from something, and it doesn't really matter at this point what God has called you from, however lowly you were. God has called you to something glorious, to belong to Jesus, to come to be able to stand before him, holy and blameless, to come to him as his very children who he loves, to approach the throne of grace, called us to peace, called us to freedom. That is a glorious calling, brothers and sisters. Oh, it is so important for us to know the hope of this calling. So let us search the scriptures to see what his plan is for us as Christians. Let us pray that we and our brothers and sisters around us would know it that we would grow in this hope and this knowledge of what is God's plan for us? What has he done for us? The second request is that we would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This could be speaking of us as God's inheritance, as the Bible often speaks this way, or it could be speaking of the inheritance that God has laid up for us. Either one is possible from the Greek. Either one should be a great comfort to us. And really, it doesn't matter that much because it amounts to the same thing. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. God has chosen us to be his people, and he is our God. That is a great treasure. If he is speaking of us as his inheritance, isn't it amazing how much he treasures us, how he considers us a good catch? He considers us something to rejoice about. You know, I, 
I've wondered sometimes what it would sound like to hear God sing. I told someone that one time, and they said, what would he sing about? But there in Zechariah tells you, he sings about you. He rejoices over you as his possession. Well, he's already the king. He owns the whole world. But a king doesn't just control the whole country. He has jewels and his clothes, certain things that are his particular possession, his treasure. That's what he thinks, that's how he thinks of us, his particular treasure. And if it's speaking of the inheritance he gives, isn't it amazing that he, he gives himself to us? Now, I think because of verse 11 and 14, he's speaking of the inheritance he's laid up for us. He's probably speaking that way, praying for that here too. But either way, they're both connected. We are God's, we are his people. God is our God, we are his people. That is an amazing relationship. We need to grow in our knowledge and enjoyment of God. We have him, he treasures us. And if you truly understood that, how our lives would change It would give us contentment, peace in the midst of trouble, a sure hope for the future, joy even in sorrow. The third request is the one that Paul has focused on the most, the one that he expounds the most. And that is that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So along with God's call and God's inheritance, this is too big for us to get our minds completely around. It is surpassingly great. He said, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So there's, there's no way for me to express this fully. But I can say very simply, it's a more than enough for all your needs today and for all your needs tomorrow, and for all your needs forever. Now, how do we know this? Look at God's power displayed in Jesus Christ. This is what he points us to. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Four things it, talks about, it says about this power. Four things that God does. First, he raised him from the dead. Second, he seated him at his right hand. Third, he puts all things in subjection under his feet. And four, he gave him as head of all things to the church. Now, he could have said other things about God's power. He could say, look at his power at work for you. This is the God who created the world by speaking it into existence, created the universe. He upholds all things by the words of, word of his power. He could have said how he held the sea back when Israel passed through, how he crushed the Egyptians, how he displayed his power in all the plagues, how He destroyed the army of Sennacherib in one night. All of these things he could have said, but 
Paul wants to point out his power specifically toward you who believe when he raised Jesus from the dead. So what he's saying about what he did for Jesus, he's saying he did for you. This was his power displayed toward you who believe when he raised Jesus from the dead, which will make no sense as long as you see yourself apart from Christ. But God doesn't. God has united you to Christ. And so chapter 2 where it talks about how you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God raised us up with Christ, flows from this prayer. That when God raised up Christ, he raised up you too. See, in verse 19, it's the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe. In verse 22, Christ is the head over all things to the church. That is, for the church's sake. Think of it, Christ was dead. He was as low as anyone has ever been. He suffered hell for us on the cross. And now he is alive forevermore. In his great power, he put death to death. Death has been defeated. And by the same power, we are raised with Christ We are seated with him in the heavenly places too. Christ has not been brought back to life like like Lazarus was, to die once more. Jesus was raised in glorious, powerful resurrection life with an imperishable, imperishable body that can never be corrupted. That is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. It has surpassed and overcome all the effects of sin. It has surpassed and overcome all the effects of death forever. It has surpassed and overcome all the effects of the curse. He did not merely raise Christ from the dead, but he exalted him at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that could be named in this, na- in this age and also in the one to come. Now in Ephesus, there was a lot of magic scrolls they would use to, to try to say names of, of gods to try to exercise power. You might remember in Acts that the seven sons of Sceva tried to use Jesus' name to cast out demons, a demon-possessed man. He said, they said, we cast you out in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. And it's a little bit terrifying. The demon said, we know Jesus, and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then it jumped on them, beat them all up, and they all ran away naked. Well, this might have been the context this magic, the magical scrolls and things like that, the power that they thought they saw in Ephesus. God has been raised Jesus above every name, more powerful, every name that could be named in this age and in the one to come. He's raised him from the lowest place to the very highest place that could ever be. How much power is that? And that power is for you also who believe because The church is his body. 
He is our head. And it's very important for you to see this, that what he did for Christ, he did for you. God gave Jesus the spirit of wisdom and knowledge, didn't he? Isaiah 11 gave him the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Why did Jesus need more wisdom? Is the spirit wiser than Jesus? No, he gave it to him as our mediator. He pours the spirit out on Jesus so that the church might be blessed through it. There's this interesting psalm where it says, how blessed, what a blessing it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard. And you might wonder, why are we singing about Aaron's beard, his oily beard? What does that have to do with church unity? But Aaron was the high priest. The spirit was poured out on Christ, our high priest. It comes down upon his body, down upon his robes, the edges of his robes, the psalm goes on to say. The spirit was given to Christ for the church. Wisdom was given to Christ for the church. Jesus was raised for the church. Sometimes we even think of salvation in terms of an exchange. It's merely an exchange, as if somebody had to die for your sin. So Jesus stepped in, he took your place, and he died in your place. Now you are set free. And you can't figure out, why is it necessary then that Jesus would be raised? Because I'm already set free. Have you ever wondered that when you're trying to share the gospel? How do I explain that the resurrection is necessary and that without it, we are of all men most to be pitied if Jesus Christ is still dead? If he's still dead, we're still dead. Because the life that he gives us, you see, is his life. Unless Jesus is raised from the dead, we can't be raised. The body cannot live without the head. And so... If the head is safe, we're safe. It's like a person swimming. And this is a silly picture. But if you imagine someone swimming and his head was underwater and his body was completely out of water, one, that would be weird. But two, that would be, you would be worried about this person, right? You cannot live that way. But if the head's out of water, it doesn't really matter where the body is. The body is safe. Our head is in heaven, far above all rule and power and dominion and authority, above every name that could be named. And therefore, because we are connected to him, we are safe. You are safe. So this, this is the immeasurable greatness of God's power working for you who believe when he raised Jesus from the dead, when he seated him at the heavenly, at his right hand, above every name, because he is united to you. You are his body. So he sits not just above every name, but far above them. Brothers and sisters, your future is secure because he reigns forever. Do you remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary before Jesus was born? He said, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom 
shall have no end. Brothers and sisters, that has happened. The Father has given to Jesus to be head over all things, now and forever. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And isn't it amazing that the head of the universe is also the head of the church? If you were to journey into heaven, it's hard to imagine. We can't really imagine it, but heaven is, as far as we can tell, a diverse place. There are angels there. There are some with four wings, some with six wings, some with four faces. We can't even begin to understand the diversity of intelligent life up there. And as you go in, the more strange it feels, the more you might feel out of place there. But there above them all, above it all, far above it all, is a, is a human being. Your brother, your husband. And you know that you belong there. And he comes, stands to welcome you, coming into his presence. Isn't that amazing? The head of all things, the head of heaven and earth, is the head of the church, and you are his dear bride. He fills us, he directs us, he leads us, he gives us life, he protects us. Brothers and sisters, we are still temporarily subject to sickness and death, but your head is alive forevermore, and so you will reign with him forevermore. Nothing is more certain than that. Brothers and sisters, are you sinful? Christ is holy and pure. Are you struggling and stumbling? Christ has been made for you the sure foundation. Are you surrounded by enemies, by the world, the flesh, the devil? Well, take courage, brothers and sisters. Christ has overcome them all for you. All things are under his feet. Are you weak? He is strong. Are you ignorant? He is the wisdom of God. Are you lost? He is the way. He is the light. Whatever you lack, it is found there for you in Jesus Christ, who reigns over all things for your sake. Brothers and sisters, this is my prayer for you too, that you would grow in the knowledge of this. Oh, that we would grow in our knowledge of him. May the Lord open our eyes and our heart to know him and let us turn to him with thankfulness and praise for what he has given us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your great power. We thank you for the hope to which you've called us. We thank you for your inheritance in the saints. We thank you for the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, who you have united us to, who you raised from the dead, who you seated at your right hand. You put all things under his feet, and you gave him as head for all, over all things to the church. Lord, what a wonderful king that you have given us. Help us to know you more. Help us to know what you have blessed us with. Give us faith that we might meditate on you 
and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.